The reading tonight is from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Romans 10, 1 through 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Good evening, church. Okay. Just for that, you're going to get a long one. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Good evening. Nice to see you all. Um, we are picking back up with our teaching series on the way of salvation. As I mentioned before, we're working our way through this plan that has been um, so commonly known in our fellowship. It's been talked about frequently. It's been understood by generations in the American Restoration Movement specifically. And what we're trying to do is do the deep and lasting work that is required for every generation coming to know Christ and every person in every generation to fully understand the gospel path to salvation. And each time I'm trying to lay before you so that we are on the same, not just the track, but the same train going in the right direction, the objectives of why we're coming and doing a series of teaching on the basic components of the way a person is saved or experiences or has what the Bible calls salvation. And as I said, we're trying to do the work that is required of us. Another main objective that I'm trying to do with us together is this, that we might reframe and, and restate in a deeper way some of the shortcuts that we have picked up over the last, let's say, 125 to 150 years in, in church teaching. We've picked up some shortcuts. Tonight is one in particular that we're going to dig into. But as I mentioned before, one of the things that we really want to reframe is calling these the steps of salvation and replacing that with the practices of salvation. The, the term step oftentimes leaves us thinking that we just do it once and it's over. So you hear once and you believe once and you confess once, you repent once and you're baptized once and then you're just in this state of salvation. And then the rest of your life you just sort of maintain status quo 
of what God expects out of Christians. You know, show up at the building when you need to and, you know, take communion when you're supposed to, give some of your money. And if you just do those things, you'll sustain a status of okay with God. And then if you do that in this life and you end and this life is now over, then you'll receive just a reward and you move on. But the Bible describes salvation in a much uh, deeper, richer, fuller term than just hanging on by a few practices until this life's over so you get something better than this. It describes it much deeper. And so we want to see these steps as actual practices that people who are saved engage in hearing Christ. They engage in constantly having their beliefs retrained and, and, and clarified by the Word of God, not by the world. They are people that practice confession regularly. They're people that practice constant repentance. And yes, there is a moment when they're born in the waters of baptism, but those people also practice dying to themselves daily to live to Christ. Um, the third thing we're trying to do is really strengthen intergenerational conversion, meaning from one generation of parents that are Christians, raising children in the pews, making that conversion a strong conversion, not just a transfer of church membership or an uh, inheritance of the church pew, so to speak. Like dad sat here and then when dad you know, grows up and he's gone, then I get his pew because we just kind of hang in there. We want real conversion of young people that grow up in this place. And lastly, I want to stir up um, perhaps stale faith that may be um, in this room of those who maybe haven't been practicing these early principles of Christianity, the bedrock on which we stand. So, so far we've looked at the problem. We've begun to dig into the initial practices of being people who hear and people who are actively believing um, and having our beliefs retrained by the Word of God. Tonight we're going to move into confession. Confession. When I speak of reframing some of the shortcuts that we have developed over the years, this is a major one that we've got to do. Um, confession can oftentimes be, in our fellowship, reduced to the simple I do that a penitent person who now is believing says after the preacher or the elder or the person baptizing says, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And that person will say, I do. And we call that, I'm taking their confession. Um, in the scripture, that's called the good confession. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Messiah? That was the good confession that Peter made in Matthew 16. It's the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. And it's the one that Paul told Timothy that we ought to hold to as well. But confession is more than that. When it's used, um, I'm sorry, confession is much deeper than that. It's used as a baseline of belief and is developed into a practice. And so tonight, I want us to get into the idea of confession, the practice of confession. The idea of confessing should be something that marks our life daily. A practice that we engage in with God, with ourselves, and ultimately with those that are near and close to us in our life. Um, so we're going to be pretty simple tonight. The outline is pretty clear. I'll try to lay it out for you as easily as possible. But the first thing we're going to do is what is confession? We've got to get a biblical definition of it. Like most words, they get mangled in the world and they've lost their biblical meaning to us. The second thing is we're going to ask, why don't we confess? 
Why don't we confess? The Bible is actually, the scripture we read tonight reveals the core reason why we don't confess. Even though there's a multitude of surface reasons, there's a core reason why we don't confess. And then we'll finish with what is going to empower you to be a person to practice confession. So uh, the thing I want you to have permeated in your mind tonight, as we go through these steps, as we progress through these three questions, is this. Am I a person that wants to change? Am I? Am I a person that wakes up and says, who I am now, where I am now, um, I thank God for the progress that he's brought to my life, but am I a person that wants to grow, that wants to come closer to the image of Jesus Christ? Am I that kind of person? You're going to find that confession is an irreplaceable practice if you're a person that wants to change. You will not change without confession. You will not. And so we'll dig into that and make some sense of it. But let that be um, maybe coloring your, uh, your, your vision and your thinking tonight as we talk about what confession is and why we don't do it and what's going to empower us to do it. So let's get started. Uh, what is confession? You know, the word is actually really simple in the New Testament. Uh, it's two words that have come together, which mean um, that which is the same and words of logic and reason. The, the, those two words come together to make the word confession in the scripture. And what it means is it just literally means to agree, to voice the same conclusion. So if I were to say something like um, the sky is blue and you said, yes, the sky is blue, that would be a confession because you are aligning with and agreeing with something that I've said. You've confessed to that. Um, confession also means to stop your disagreeing. To stop resisting, to stop fighting um, the fight that you're putting up against something that is true and stop disagreeing with it. Um, to confess means to speak the same thing, to align yourself, and to be in full agreement with something. So um, what we've got to do with the word confession is overcome some cultural hurdles that we have in our time in this place today. Um, the very first one is that confession is oftentimes seen as reluctant submission. Confession, it gets the image that it's this reluctant sort of submission that you have to do, um, that you don't really want to do, and so you're resisting it, but sooner or later you just got to um, give in and then just kind of submit to it. You see, in the judicial system, typically an accused person holds out on confessing a crime until there's sufficient evidence that is presented that proves that they've done something. If there's no evidence at all, what we see in human nature is, not, is this resistance to this open, free acknowledgement and agreement that if there's an accusation against me and that accusation is true, typically human nature resists agreeing with that. We usually want to find out what information you have on me, how much do you know, what can be proved in a court of law, because even now we don't always care what people know because we can spin a story, you know, and maybe land at the same conclusion but have different stories about that. And so confession, rarely do we hear about a person clearing their conscience with a confession without any sort of information being revealed. Uh, in fact, we see quite the opposite in our culture. We really live in a world that says what's true is what you know about me and what you don't know, I can live as if it's not true. That's not confession. 
Being, also, being caught is not confession either. Confession is the open expression, the agreement of what is true. The other hurdle that we've got to deal with is not in the judicial system, but it's in the religious system, the religious world, especially in our culture. Um, confession is not seen as something reluctant, but something that is compulsory. It's an activity that you have to do against your will, but you better do it if you want to remain in the grace of God. Um, but because we don't like to confess, and over the course of time, many people have resisted confessing or being a person that practices confession in the religious world, we've made accommodations to confession to make it easier. Um, not necessarily in, in our context, but in other religious contexts, they've made accommodations so that we would continue to be people that confess, but it doesn't hurt as much. And so we've created private rooms that are secret. We've created um, only specific people that you confess to, like clerical or clergy people. And so you don't confess to actual people that hold you accountable, that live with you, that walk in your life. And, and if we, uh, that, that's mainly in the Catholic tradition. And then in the Protestant world, what has happened is a resistance to that confession because that's not scripturally based. We've gone to the other extreme that say, hey, we can't practice confession like that. Let's just not practice confession. And so we've gone to both extremes. And both are unhealthy. Confession has been presented in such a way that it's so uncomfortable that it's so scary. Satan has worked a magical doctrine into the religious world that says that confession is not good for you, but necessary so that you can stay in God's grace, but it won't do anything for you. And that is just simply not true. The biblical uh, presentation of confession is this beautiful cycle of the Christian life where health comes out of our sorrow. And out of our grief and out of our conviction and out of our, our hurting and out of our confession comes born spiritual life. And so we're going to get into that here in just a moment. So scripture just simply does not speak of confession in those terms, whether it be a reluctant submission or a compulsory activity just to get God's grace. Confession is not reluctant, nor should be con confession be secretive. Confession is open willing agreement to what is true. That's my best shot at giving you a simple definition, okay? Confession is open, willing agreement to what happens to be true. That's all it is. It's done in two ways. You've got to get this. Confession is done in two ways. The first way is confession about yourself. Look in uh, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 of Romans. Paul says, you know, he, he's longing for his Israelite brethren to be saved. And confession about themselves, being honest about what was true about themselves, is what was stopping Paul's Israelite companions from becoming Christians. They refused to tell the truth about themselves to themselves. Listen to what Paul says. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What knowledge are they lacking? Is it in the scripture? Are they lacking knowledge in knowing the word of God? No, these are people that live and breathe the Old Testament scriptures to us, the Hebrew scriptures. They know them. 
Their problem is not a knowledge of the words that are on the scrolls in the temple. That's not their problem. They have a lack of knowledge according to verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, God's righteousness is a phrase that Paul uses over and over in the book of Romans. From the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 16, when he talks about the gospel revealing God's righteousness, the fact that God does what is right, that God is righteous, that God does the right thing. They are ignorant of God's righteousness. God's righteousness was fully displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And at that, at the cross, you see two things happening. One, you see the demonstration of God's wrath on sin. Now, Jesus Christ himself not being a sinner means that there are sins of other people that have put Jesus Christ on the cross. These Jewish people were ignorant. They refused to acknowledge their sinfulness. And so Paul is saying they had a serious problem acknowledging and confessing their own sinfulness. They resisted that. You see, this is why Paul took so long in the beginning of Romans. If you ever read Romans in the first three chapters, you're like, whew, there's a lot there. You know, he comes into chapter 1, verse 16, talking happy stuff about the gospel. And then in verse 18, he enters with the wrath of God. And he doesn't stop on wrath and sin until chapter 3, verse 21. All that time, you know what Paul is doing? He's not convincing Gentile sinners that they're sinners. He's convincing religious, moral people that they too are sinful. You see, um, what he's saying here really is brilliant because he, he's talking to people who had the religion, who had morality, and who had heritage in their faith. And those things, their religion, their morality, and their heritage built a separation in their mind between themselves and sinful people. Their religion, their morality, and all of that separated them from what they thought was sinful or Gentile people. And so this is the great challenge of what I'll call in-house conversion. Young people that grow up with their bottoms in the pews, this is the great challenge that we've got to face, is that it's a great blessing to be raised in the pews. You get a morality, you get a moral compass that will guide you, you have an access to the scripture at a very early age, you have seeds planted early in you, but one of the great challenges is really conviction of sin, that you're really not different than those who grow up outside of the church, and that your conversion must be the same as someone who is outside the body of Christ growing up. That it's just as miraculous as anyone else. Listen to what Paul would say in chapter 2. Just listen to these words. After he goes on this um, display of the wrath of God against the sin of the world, which are just heinous things, he says in chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, now listen to this, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking about chapter 1. Who practice those heinous, vile, 
ugly things that are in those lists in chapter 1, the judgment of God will fall on those people. He, he knows that. But he says, you who judge those, practice the very same thing. It says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, when you hear that, you might think, well, are these people just blatant hypocrites? Are they people that are moral and religious on Saturday, their Sabbath day, yet on Sunday or Monday are actually out there maybe committing the homosexual activity or the murder? Or thing? Are, are they doing that? That's not what Paul is getting at. He's saying you may not need deliverance from what you call recognizable sin, but you need deliverance from sin like everybody else. You see, the very thing that you're judging people for, you do the same. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, think of it in modern terms. Um, I, I grew up in a household that at least took us to church every week. You know, we went, um, uh, tried to go, you know, we did the three time a week kind of rhythm for a long time. And there were people that I grew up with in school that had no religious background, no connection to a church, no connection to any religion. And they would fall into things that were much more obvious in their immorality. Things like drug abuse and sexuality behaviors and all those things that were just completely obvious to that. But here's what Paul is saying. People that fall into, let's say, uh, just the obvious one like rampant drug use. Do those things to find comfort, escape, maybe even identity, a place to belong. They do those things to escape from what's in them that they don't like about themselves. And what Paul is saying is, you who judge those people are judging them to get identity, worth, value. Do you see what I'm saying? So in your morality, in your religion, in your heritage, to practice judgment on people who do obvious or heinous or, or the, the, uh, the easily recognizable sins is to be working the same solution that they're working with a different uh, uh, tool, so to speak. Yours might be religious, theirs might be irreligious, but at the end of the day, you're building your life and your identity on something other than the grace of God. That's what it is. And so what he's trying to convince us is that we have to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. That's where confession begins. You've got to tell yourself the truth. And you might not know all the truth. I, I guarantee we don't know all the truth about ourselves right now. We've got to not be afraid to pray to God that His light might shine into our darkness, that we might not run from that darkness, that we might call out to Him to change that darkness and drive it out with His light. But the second way of confession, so you confess to yourself about yourself, confess to God about yourself, is a confession or a profession about God. Look in chapter uh, 10, verse 5. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now look what we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, the second way that we are to practice confession is not just being honest with ourselves about who we are, but also proclaiming what is true about God. This is to, to declare with conviction what is real about who God is. This is powerful because the more you understand and know who God is, and the more you confess who God is, God, you are merciful, God, you are faithful, God, you are just, God, you are righteous, God, you are holy, the more those truths are driven into you, and the more you believe them, and proclaim them, and confess them, the more it will drive the first confession, what is true about you. You see, the clearer you see who God is, the clearer you'll see who you are. The clearer you understand His character, His nature, and you actually believe that's true about the God of the universe, that He is who He says He is, who Scripture reveals. And you confess that in your prayer life, to yourself in your mind, and to others. The more you'll confess what is true about yourself. God is just, righteous, holy, but God is merciful, loving, slow to anger, abounding in grace. You wonder why the stories of the Old and New Testament matter so much, so you can see who God is. You ought to spend a significant amount of your prayer time not just telling God what you need or telling God what you've done, but reciting to God who He is. Make prayer not just an act of um, request, but an act of worship. That will be transformative to you. The deeper you believe these truths, the more you'll confess. All the great confessions of the Bible. Let me give you three to think about. Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel is just heartbroken over Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, also in Ezra, when they're rebuilding the walls and they're, re they're finding the law and reading that again and learning about themselves. Psalm 51 and David and repenting over Bathsheba. All of them weave together both aspects of confession what is true about us, and what is true about God. You see, if you lean one way or the other, you'll be off balance in your life. Just think about it. If all you do is confess your wretchedness, you'll be a miserable person. You'll struggle with depression. You'll be paralyzed to do anything in the kingdom of God. You'll constantly be comparing yourself to other people. You'll end up either being prideful, or you'll be bitter, or you'll be arrogant, or you'll be competitive. That's what you'll do if you lean to one side and only confess what is true about you. But if all you do is lean to the other side and confess just what is true about God without any acknowledgement of yourself, you'll be complimentary to God, but you'll never be converted. You won't change. You'll just sing God's praises, but it'll have nothing to do with you and changing your heart. The power of confession is in the tension being held together between what is true about you and what is true about God. And that takes a deep level of humility. So let's ask this question, why don't you confess? Why don't I confess? You know, there's a lot of reasons that come to mind for me. Things like fear, right? I don't want people to know my dirty laundry. Um, I don't want people to know what's deeply real about me. I might lose friends. I might uh, incite some gossip about me. I might um, receive, you know, changing in relationships. Um, I might be afraid of people's approval. So when I'm at work or in my community, I might be, have fear of confessing or professing what I believe to be true about God, especially in our culture today as it's leaning farther and farther away from holding biblical truths. So fear or anxiety might cause you to not confess. 
Maybe things like pride or blindness might cause you not to confess. You might just not always see, like, what's wrong with you. You might not see your pride. That's one of the big challenges of pride is its blindness. But Romans chapter 10, verse 3, will give you the summary in one thought behind both fear, fear of rejection, and pride that causes us not to be people that practice confession about ourselves and confession about God. Look what he says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Why don't we confess? Why don't we say what's true about ourselves? Why don't we say what's true about God? Because we are so caught up in reestablishing the righteousness we lost in Genesis chapter 3. When we lost what the Bible calls righteousness, I'll call you your presentability, your ability to stand in front of God and in front of others and say, you can know anything you want. You can know any thought that I've had. You can know any action I've done. I have no fear because I know that I am worthy of being presented to God and to you. We lost that in our sin. And since that, we have been constantly trying to recapture what the Bible calls righteousness. And any time that is being recaptured or being um, purchased through our own resources, the Bible calls that self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. You see, every human being um, commits sin. And sin brings into us a great brokenness. The loss of righteousness. The loss of the ability to stand without the fear, without shame, without needing to hide. And so the natural human response to this shame, to this loss of righteousness, is either to look outside and blame and finding logic for our sin. It's what Adam did when he said, the woman made me do it. Look outside of ourselves to blame. Or we look inside for the solution. We make fig leaves and we cover. We either blame someone or something else, um, which is just self-produced atonement, or we exalt a part of ourselves that we find acceptable, which is self-produced justification. We'll do one or the other. You'll either blame somebody or you'll exalt a piece of you that you think is great to keep at bay people knowing what's true about us and ultimately us confessing what's true about God. Either way, we're seeking to restore righteousness on our own without God. That is the core reason that people do not practice confession either of our own sin or the truth of who God is. Fear of what people will think, denial of our sinfulness, doubt of God's goodness, all come from an attempt to solve our need for righteousness apart from the grace of Christ. That's the core problem. And so if you're not practicing confession, ask yourself, how am I trying to solve my acceptability, my righteousness without Christ? Because that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm not confessing either my sin or God's goodness or who he is. That's why I'm not doing it. So what's going to empower you to do it? Look at verse 4. What's going to give you the energy, the power to be a person that practices confession and knows what the Bible really calls the salvation? Verse 4 says this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law giving us righteousness. Christ came and concluded 
the concept that by man keeping law, he would somehow figure out a way to make himself righteous with God again. You see, the law will not be the place people go to be righteous anymore. You cannot point to your obedience to the law and say, God, I am now acceptable in your sight. You just can't do it. Nor can you run from the law and say, I just don't adhere to it, so I don't need to be righteous. The law of God stands. The Ten Commandments, what God has said about how man should live, is universal. It's how we are to be. But the question is, do you point to those things and say, look, I don't really need Christ. I keep them all. I'm good. Or do you run from them and say, they don't really matter anymore. Which one do you do? The law will not produce acceptability in you without Christ. What's interesting about the law is the law is actually the first place we see confession really come out as a command in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 5, in teaching about what to do when we need atonement, says that when you become aware of your sin, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, if you ever become aware of sin, it says that you are to first confess your sin. And then you take the proper sacrifice to the priest who will then offer that sacrifice to God for your atonement. You see, confession is a requirement, a prerequisite for sacrifice. You wouldn't show up at the temple and say, hey, priest, how you doing? I brought my sacrifice. You'd be like, well, for what? You'd be like, uh, listen, man, it's not really your business. don't really want to talk about it. I just want to give you my sacrifice. That, that's not how it worked. It didn't work that way. Confession was before sacrifice. This was the law. You become aware of your sin. You confess your sin. You produce a sacrifice to your priest, and you'll be forgiven. And then one day per year, uh, Leviticus 16 tells us about this. It's called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement would come. The high priest would take two goats, and he would cast in front of those two goats lots. One goat would then be sacrificed or slaughtered, and the blood would cleanse or forgive the nation of Israel of their sins and the meeting place where they would meet God of, of all of the impurity of the practices in that place. Um, and on the other, the high priest would then lay his hands and he would confess all the sins of Israel. Yes, even the ones that Israel that, that you may not become aware of just yet. Any of those that have not come into your conscience yet that you haven't been able to bring a sacrifice for. And for that year, he would lay his hands on that goat and he would confess to all the sins. He would transfer the sins of all the people to that goat. And then they would lead that, lead that goat out away from the people cast that goat out into a wilderness for that goat to carry the sins of all the people. This practice kept Israel presentable before God. This practice kept Israel righteous for a period of time. But the problem with this practice, with this system, is that it never could come into Israel and from the inside out change them who they were. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says the blood of bulls and goats cannot make us pure or forgive us. It cannot sanctify us in perfection. And so they had to continue to do it over and over, year after year. So how does Christ end this law? He doesn't end it by saying, never mind about it. He doesn't end it by saying the Ten Commandments don't matter or just forget about it. He ends it by completing it. He is the true offering for sin. The Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. 
He is the true high priest who purifies the people with blood and then mediates forgiveness before God. In front of him, they also cast lots like in front of the two goats. But unfortunately for him, there wasn't another. The lot fell on him for both, to be slaughtered and to be sent out. You see, he forgave and he cleansed. He offered us redemption, but he also carried away the power of our sin from us. If he is the true sacrifice, the true scapegoat, the true high priest, what's left in the law? If sacrifice and priest, those two obligations are gone from the law, what's left? What's the only thing left? Confession. That's all that's left. Sacrifice provided, priest is already provided. The only thing left is for God's people to agree with him about what sin is and who he is. The only other thing that took place in the law was confession. The rest had been done. And the question is, do you believe this to be true? That Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice for all people for all time. When you truly begin to believe this, I promise you'll freely confess. You'll finally understand that your sin's been paid for and you'll say it to God. And you'll feel the deep, overwhelming relief by not just giving Him an inch, but telling Him, yes, God, I didn't just do wrong today. I thought wrong today. My attitude was wrong. My spirit was wrong. And I don't like that. And I thank you so much for Jesus Christ forgiving of me that and taking this burden off my shoulders. You'll lovingly and freely confess. And boy, it'll change your life. And when that starts to happen, you will openly profess who Jesus Christ is. You won't stop. Boy, it'll change your life. And you will not, you'll be hungry to tell people about the deep relief that comes off of your chest, off of your shoulders, and changes your life. On Yom Kippur, in Leviticus chapter 16, God ordered that the nation of Israel would do two things. One, he says that they would afflict themselves. They would fast. And two is that they would Sabbath, that they would rest from all work. You see, the weightiness of that day demanded reflection. You see, in that day, they knew that they were sinful people, but God provided a Savior. They knew that, although it was temporary. And they needed to reflect on that. And in that reflection, Israel would endure pain, but they would stop working. You see, if you finally see Jesus Christ as the perfect Yom Kippur, as the perfect Lamb, as the perfect priest, you're going to endure pain. It's brutal to confess. It hurts. It humbles you. It deconstructs not just your mind, but your heart. But you can never be rebuilt in the image of God until you deconstruct what's sinful about you. So it will hurt. Like God said, you will be afflicted on that day. But don't forget, he says, not only will you be afflicted, but you also have Sabbath. You'll rest. You'll stop the churning of building your own righteousness. Boy, doesn't that sound good? Wouldn't you like to have that? You'll have it when you finally see Jesus as the ultimate lamb who was slain, the high priest who mediates for you, and the only thing left for you to do is say, I believe and confess that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. He's my Savior, and now I can fully and freely tell myself, my God, and those nearest to me what's true about me in hopes that I could be sanctified to become the image of God. That's the point of salvation, that you might change to become like Christ. Boy, let us help you. Let's stand and sing.